Uh, you know, we are continuing in our final week of our series, Loving Logic, as Landon uh, mentioned. And in one sense, I know that this has been very long and complex. Even like each message has been longer than most messages are, right? I think we preached an hour and five last week. And, and, uh, and, and I just want to give you guys an opportunity uh, to do what I'm kind of just now feeling like I'm able to do. Breathe. <laughs> just take a deep breath real quick. <sighs> Home stretch, right? <laughs> it's been an incredible series, but it's really been a lot of challenging topics that have forced us to evaluate our belief system, that have forced us to really confront those things that a lot of us have you know, unintentionally come to believe about life and, and God and, 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 you know, begin to bring those things into the light of the gospel and say, hey, what, what do I believe and, and how am I to walk this out? You know, our goal in this series is to be informed and equipped to hold fast to and declare biblical truth in a loving and logical way. Now, how many of you, with the first time you heard that in week one, knew this was going to be a long and complex series <laughs> based on that long and complex goal? But that goal is really a summary of what we see in the scriptures as a path to discipleship. Jesus did these same things with his disciples. It might not have been from a pulpit with lights on it like this, although we do have the Sermon on the Mount as an example of a very long sermon, the longest sermon ever recorded, longer than any I've ever preached, just to be clear. In case any of you were starting to think I was getting a little long-winded, okay? Jesus is long-winded. But this is discipleship. And I want to thank you for leaning into the discipleship that we're providing here at Northwood Church and, and that you guys are actually helping to provide through groups and, and just so many other spaces. Um, you know, it's, it's yielding fruit. Uh, I want to take a second, and I really don't have time for this, but I must because, because we have discussed some very difficult topics. Um, you know, you start to wonder, like, man, is it worth stirring the pot? Is it worth going in the way that we've gone in? And, and I just want to tell you, Across all four locations, every single week, we have had testimonies of people who have never heard these things, but we're hearing maybe some other things that this has brought clarity to them about their faith. Uh, last week, we taught one of the most difficult messages out of the series. Uh, it was a message on sexuality. At all of our locations, we had varying uh, fruit. Uh, in some locations, there was people struggling with transgenderism that came up to the communicator, the pastor after service and asked for additional resources on transgenderism because they want to know how to navigate this in, in, in a way that honors God. Uh, same thing about homosexuality, asking for, for resources uh, to help them navigate homosexuality through a, uh, uh, to, in a way that you know, their sexuality can begin to honor uh, God. And uh, in, in myself even, I have a dear friend, beautiful brother uh, that I love very much so, and uh, he, he reached out to me and said, hey, uh, we don't agree on everything that you said, but one thing I can tell you is I've been in a lot of places that have talked about sexuality uh, from a conservative view, and uh, he said they've never said it really lovingly, and he said, I, I didn't know that that topic could be discussed in a loving way, and you proved that it could be. These things, yeah, man, praise God for that. These things are hard, and, and in our diverse context as a church where there's a lot of people that have different backgrounds and different experiences, we are confronting things that seem to be drawing some, some lines around belief, but at the same time, we've not only been presenting an honest logic about what we believe about these things, I believe we've been faithful to have these conversations, not just from the pulpit, but in our groups as well, in the most loving way, in, the, in, the, in a way that's respectful and, and gentle, and I think that's the heart of Jesus, and so I'm just thankful to be part of a church where we can do these these things and uh, really stretch out our faith and belief. Amen? That being said, this series has been rooted in a scripture, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and it's in that scripture where uh, Paul tells the church at Colossae, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. That word take captive, that, you know, I mean, think about it, almost like getting kidnapped, right? See to it that nobody kidnaps you by some philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so Paul is clearly articulating that there are philosophies in this world that 
are according to Christ, and there are those that are not according to Christ, and he really wanted to be sure to help the church sort those things out to make sure that we are believing in accordance with Christ. And uh, throughout this series, we've introduced and kind of returned to this phrase called progressive Christianity. Uh, progressive, a lot of people think from a political lens. We're not talking politically here. We're talking in regards to the way that we interpret the Bible and believe about uh, the, the, the truth that the Bible contains. Are we more traditionally minded or progressively minded? And we've been talking about people who would consider themselves progressive Christians. And one of those people that we've highlighted is a man named Philip Goley who wrote this book called If the Church Were Christian. And uh, he makes these 10 statements throughout the the book, and we've been over the last uh, six weeks now, this is the seventh week, unpacking these statements and, and really finding some of the things that we actually find agreeable, but also a number of things, and a good portion of, of the conversation has been uh, centered on what we find disagreeable with those progressive Christian statements. Uh, I do want to say this, progressive Christians have made some incredibly valuable contributions to the conversation, to, to Christendom. Uh, whether they're completely in alignment with how we believe as traditional Christians here at Northwood Church about what the Bible says, we absolutely need this critique. We need these questions to be asked. We need these challenges to come to us to force us to evaluate what we believe and to make sure that we understand what we believe, that we have integrity in our belief, and that based on their critique of oftentimes the traditional church, that it is unloving, that we would bring our truth in the most loving way. And so that it's almost accountability in a certain way. And so I value that accountability that comes from a lot of progressive Christians. However, we would also say that based on the way that we believe and interpret the scriptures, if we were to logically examine the claims that we find in progressive Christianity, it does not appear to us to reflect the claims, the truth that was being presented in the scriptures uh, and that the New Testament church held to. That, that is the way that we view this here at Northwood Church. So in this series, again, we've been unpacking these, and it says that Throughout the series, we've learned that a progressive Christian would ultimately want to deconstruct a lot of old restrictive and, and somewhat what some would consider oppressive ideas. And they may even downplay Jesus' divinity because if Jesus is not Messiah, if Jesus doesn't have a godly authority, if Jesus is not literally 100% God but is only man, then he's, we're not accountable to him and his teaching. And ultimately, a lot of progressive Christians would believe that we're all good by nature. And these are kind of umbrella, you know, conclusions, by the way. There's a spectrum here. Not everybody believes this way, but this is generally what we, we see in a lot of the progressive literature. And not only is everybody good by nature, but that truth is subjective. That means that they would believe that your truth, whatever your truth is, comes from your experience. And you base what you believe off of your experience, not some objective outside truth that somebody else is telling you. And, and, and therefore, then, you know, potentially even what the Bible says. And so what is the subjective truth that I align my life around? That would be a question they might ask. And therefore, if there is no objective truth, there's only subjective truth, things based out of my experience and, and, and you know, my vibe with the way I hear information, then we don't necessarily need any structures or authority or teachers in the church to tell us what to think or to whom we should be accountable. That's, that's a, a lot of the way that a progressive Christian oftentimes views this. And now, without that accountability, we can begin to embrace certain identities, uh, certain views on life, certain views on Jesus, and, and they can be contextualized through the way that we understand the scriptures. And oftentimes, that's more of a subjective, experience-based mindset. And, and so this, you can see, is a foundation then to also disrupt other traditional Christian beliefs. And so today, we're actually going to be evaluating another statement, and this statement comes against a very traditional belief, and a progressive Christian may want to deconstruct this because this place that we're, this thing that we're going to be talking about is a place that historical Christians would teach is reserved as a consequence for the ungodly. We're talking about a place called the afterlife. We're talking about a place called eternity. And we're also talking very specifically about a place called hell. 
And we don't hear this conversation happening in many churches that are very loving these days because it's a hard conversation. You might hear about this topic in churches that are a little less unloving. They might love to talk about hell. But what we want to do is kind of marry the truth that there is an afterlife and we need to examine that, but we also want to do it lovingly and respectfully. And so this last statement in Philip Goley's book that we're examining says this, life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Now remember, this is a progressive Christian view on the afterlife, so we don't teach what you might see on the screen. That's, I wouldn't take a picture of it and post that. I would, I would just, this is an anchor for us to understand the progressive view or the common progressive view on the afterlife. Life in this world is more important than the afterlife. And Goli is ultimately making this argument that the church is too preoccupied with the afterlife. These are his words. And that fortunes are spent saving people from the imaginary dangers of imaginary places. This is a man who calls himself Christian, who is influencing many Christians in the church with this progressive view that there's this imaginary thing called the afterlife or hell, more specifically. And so this is a big issue, and we have to ask and answer this question. Is there an afterlife, or is there nothing after this life? That's a big bridge that a believer has to cross do we just die and enter into nothingness? Other religions believe in reincarnation. You know, other religions have other views on the afterlife and suggest there's something, but, but it's not maybe the way that traditional Christians would teach it. And, and actually, a lot of people vibe with that kind of idea, even reincarnation and karma and how that, that, you know, however you live your life in this life will lend towards however you live your life in the next life when you're reincarnated. And actually, people in the church buy into that, and that's not Christian at all. And, and so we would say, okay, well, let's just say there is an afterlife. There is an afterlife. If there is, what is it like? Is it a place of punishment? Or is it a place that's more restorative? Is it a place where there's a reward? And, and we would say that in some senses, it's both. That's what we would say. Now, others might say, we believe it's only restorative, and there's no punishment. We believe it's only reward, and there's no consequence. And so we need to evaluate this. Now, this is not just a progressive Christian issue. Like, this is people who are in uh, traditionally-minded churches who have generally conservative views on the Scripture and are also wondering these same things. And so I don't want to just make this out to be, you know, historical Christians versus progressive Christians. This, this is something that you know, is, is sweeping throughout the church. Now, a lot of people would say, don't worry about what happens after death because no one really knows if it's real anyways. And maybe some of you have even thought that. And, and I do want to let you know, look, if you're wrestling with whether or not there's an afterlife and whether or not there's a place called hell, it's okay to wrestle with that. Uh, it's okay to wrestle here. Uh, I hope we've proven by now that this is a safe place to wrestle, to ask hard questions, and, and to work through uh, those things that we've struggled to believe. And, and I hope by now I've, I've proven from this platform that I embrace hard questions. I embrace dialogue. And I know I'm offering you a monologue right now. There's not a, a lot of opportunity for talk back. But at the same time, like this is who we are. We love having conversations like this in a loving and gentle way. And so, so I just want to kind of lay that out there before we really delve in. And so many would say that the only thing to worry about is the suffering, the poverty, the injustice, the war, the disease, these things that are happening in this world. These are the things that are making the world a living hell. These are what makes our world hell. Forget about the afterlife. There's, that's not hell. This, what we're seeing in front of us, the brokenness, the decay, that's hell. A lot of people believe that way. And they would say that our purpose is to fix those things and ultimately even create some utopian reality on earth. We literally have whole governing you know, bodies that have this philosophy woven into them that we can correct 
brokenness. We can legislate brokenness. We can, we can order a society in such a way that we can have a utopian, heavenish, heaven-like reality. And, and I would say this. I think it's a reasonable critique in this way uh, that someone would say the church is too preoccupied with the afterlife. It's a reasonable critique, reasonable critique because many traditional Christians are ignoring the reality of what's happening in the world around us. They're ignoring the brokenness. They're ignoring the injustice, the poverty. They're ignoring all of those things, and they're just sitting there waiting on the rapture to come. Oh, man, Jesus is coming one day. Don't get me wrong. I cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And, and we're not even getting into what we believe about the rapture in relationship to what the Scripture says about that. That's a whole other layer of nuance and conversation. That, my point is, is some of us are just like waiting on heaven to come, and we're so disconnected from the reality of the world around us that we seem a little, I don't know, let's use a, a word a progressive might like to use, tone deaf, seem a little tone deaf to the problems of the world around us. It's a big problem here in our church. We're very apathetic. Not Northwood Church as much. I think we're pretty active. I think we're pretty sensitive to the world around us. But overall, the church has proven to be very apathetic, very lazy, very complacent, very disinterested with the problems of the people around them. And that is a bad thing. That's not the heart of Jesus. And so that's a reasonable critique. However, the traditional Christian also does believe that you can't fix the terrible realities, especially by ignoring what actually causes those realities in the first place. And those realities, the war, the poverty, the injustice, even the sickness, are all consequences of the sin nature. They're all consequences of the fall in the garden. See, the sin nature, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the curse fell on humanity and all descendants thereafter, including us, it's at that time when the world began to enter into a state of decay. That's when our bodies began to break down and sickness actually entered, entered the equation. When you, look at, when you look at the sin nature being played out in each person, that's the issue that fuels injustice and, and the brokenness and the wars. That Literally, it's sin. It's, a, it's an effort for control and, and for all kinds of worldly gain that leads to those things. And so the problem with the world around us, traditional Christians diagnose that problem as being a sin problem. And it's more specifically a sin problem that we don't have the capacity to fix, not in totality. Now, we can impact it, but we can't solve it. And, and so this is why we talk about the solution to sin all the time here at Northwood Church. But that sin offends the heart of a holy God. We sung that God is a holy God, Lord God Almighty, holy, holy. We just sung that. And sometimes I wonder if we actually understand what it means that God is a holy God, distinct and set apart, There's where he is perfect light, and what fellowship has, has light with darkness. God does not fellowship with darkness, but there is darkness in this world. It's called sin. And so that sin offends the heart of a holy God, and therefore judgment of the sin is needed, and the afterlife is a big part of how that judgment plays out. Whether something is judged righteous or something is judged unrighteous, there's a destination that follows those things according to a traditional view. Now, this all stirs some easy questions and some harder questions. So let me ask a quick easy question. Is there a place of reward for the righteous? Most of you would be like, yeah, heaven. That's great. Looking forward to it, right? That's, that's an easy question, though. Here's a, here's a harder question. Can rebellious people, people who have rebelled against the king, who have rebelled against their father, can they dwell in that place with the king, with the father? Can they? That's a hard question. The hardest question is, must a rebellious people actually be separated from the king or from their father, depending on which illustration resonates with you best? 
Must they be separated from the Father? Now, many wrestle with the concept of hell because when you think about the idea that, that a king who is benevolent or a father who is loving would actually suggest that there must be separation due to rebellion, it doesn't feel good. I don't like it. I don't love it. I'm not like, that's, a, that's great, that's wonderful. I'm not over here like celebrating the fact that the scriptures appear to teach that there must be separation if there's rebellion. And I think that idea of it not feeling good is often, you know, so persuasive in our lives because many of us do believe that truth is subjective. What we believe to be true is based on what we feel. And so if something doesn't feel good, I don't know if it's true, right? And so we would deny what we call the doctrine of hell. If it doesn't feel good, why believe it, right? And this may seem logical in our emotions, but we would say if you were to play it out rationally, logically, theologically, theologically, it doesn't seem to be logical. As a matter of fact, we can't determine our truth by our feelings, and so we have to do careful criticism, critique of the Scripture and what we say we believe. Now, hell is a very different concept for people to accept for a number of reasons way beyond whether or not it feels good. So I don't want to oversimplify this, okay? As a matter of fact, we're going to deal with a few of them today, but there's a number of them. And I want to, I want to refer you to one of my favorite books I own. Uh, I bought it like a year after I was saved. It's maybe one of the first Christian books I, I bought, and it's like 1,800 pages or something like that. I'm kind of weird that way. And um, it's, it's a systematic theology uh, by Norman Geisler. And I've actually earlier in this series recommended a, another systematic theology by a guy named Wayne Grudem. Has anybody bought that? Good. Man, come on. Come on. Yeah, I bought, I, I bought that for you. Okay, I bought that for you. <laughs> He's over here. I, I got it. I got it. No, I said, did you buy it? You're like, I, I got it. I got it. <laughs> so one person bought it. Thanks for taking the recommendation. This one here um, is Norman Geisler's Systematic Theology. I really do recommend this. Because it's an easy reference point to say, hey, somebody asked me a question about this. Somebody asked me a question about that. Let me go see what this brilliant guy said about this. And, uh, and I found that he's very reliable and he's helped shape a lot of my thoughts about God and life, etc. So Norman Geisler, write that down. Anybody? Okay, so we're going to explore a few questions that people ask about hell today. Uh, and one of them is this. Haven't we misinterpreted the word hell in the Bible? And, and some of you might not have ever heard anybody ask that question, but it's a very common question. I want to play a video of a guy that asks a question very similar to that. I'm going to be brutally honest with you, and it may ruffle some people's feathers. Hell is not... Let me finish that for you. Hell is not real. No, not in the way that you think. There's four words that have been translated to our English word hell. Gehenna, Tartarus, Sheol, and Hades. What you need to know from all of those, and I have a video that breaks down a little bit more, so feel free to look at it. They don't have anything to do with a literal eternal torment. When you challenge people with this, you get a lot of pushback and anger. It's because we've obfuscated this view of God as angry and judgmental, and we have justified our own hatred and exclusion. When you tear down their arguments, they have nothing left to stand on except their own hate. Well, Derek the heretic, that's his name for himself, um, obviously has not only included in his critique of those who believe in this place called hell as, um, I guess you could say, intellectually unreliable. They didn't do the work on the language. But he would also say that they're just angry people. And I just want to, again, you know, revisit this reality. Um, maybe he's had some bad experiences in the church. Uh, people that believe in hell don't have to be angry. And people that believe in a God that isn't judgmental but does judge righteously, there's a difference. Uh, people that believe that God is just, a just judge, don't have to be angry. Uh, that is not the only conclusion. That is not the only option. Uh, that being said, I do want to say that it is true that there is not one word in the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts of the Bible that 
translates literally as hell. He's not wrong about that. Now, for those of you that are traditional-minded Christians, and you've always just accepted the idea that hell, if you got into, that hell is hell, if you got into a conversation with somebody who's more progressively minded and even understood these arguments that Derek the Heretic is making, you'd find yourself in an impasse in the conversation because you're like, well, the Bible says so. But we need to do better in our work than that. Um, see, it is true that the word hell began being used in the 13th century. That's hundreds, many hundreds of years after uh, these concepts were initially taught. But the concept of afterlife is clearly taught in the Bible. See, creating words to define existing concepts is a very common linguistic practice. Language develops over time. And so if there's a concept that hasn't yet been donned with a name, a vocabulary, then it's obvious that that concept would exist before the vocabulary that speaks to what that concept is describing is created. It's kind of the same thing with hell. As a matter of fact, it's also the same argument that we're seeing with the word hell that we saw last week about the word homosexual in the Bible. I taught you, and and I believe this to be true after many, many, many hours of hard work on the language, is that the word homosexual, though it didn't show up in our Bible until the mid-1900s, right, the 20th century, that's, that's a long time after those letters were written to the church, it doesn't mean that the concept of homosexuality was not explicitly confronted in the text. We just didn't get the word for it until later. Same issue here with hell. And so I want to dig a little bit deeper since I know that there's often a lot of confusion around these words. And Mr. TikTok, Derek the Heretic, he talked about uh, these different words, and I'm going to just kind of explore them. Gehenna, this is uh, a word that the New Testament church would have understood because it was a valley in Jerusalem, a, a literal valley. Now, there's some people that think and there's some historical controversy around this because this didn't show up until later even in the history books. And, uh, and so some people think that Gehenna is a garbage dump that burned incessantly where all waste and refuse was tossed. And, uh, and we do see some, you know, leanings towards that possibility, but that's not a guarantee. So don't hang your hat on that one. But it was a valley in Jerusalem, and it was a place that was used figuratively as a name for a place of everlasting punishment. The New Testament church did understand it that way. Now, the word Sheol uh, in the Hebrew is the same as the word Hades in the Greek. So you would have Hebrew in the Old Testament. They would have talked about a place called Sheol. Hades in the New Testament, they would have... Uh, in the Greek, and this would have been referred to as the place of departed souls or the grave. And while that's not specifically defining a place called that we understand as hell, uh, we're getting closer. Now, this other place, Tartarus, that he brought up, is the deepest abyss of Hades, and it was understood actually from a mythological perspective. This would have been something that the Greeks would have would have clearly had a framework for in their thinking. And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, he borrows from that mythological language to contextualize for his audience that was familiar with that language about what this place, Hades, and its deepest abyss was like. They already had a framework for it. And it was, in pla uh, it was a place where people, souls, were incarcerated in internal, eternal torment. This is taught. In the Bible, do we have the word hell to summarize all of this and to, to tie it up with a neat little bow? No, but we do have the concepts, the framework, and the word for hell came along later to summarize it. Now, there's also a lot in regards to interpretive issues with the language around symbolism. The symbolism in these words is, is where we're going to start getting into some conflict with people where they're like, well, you just interpret it that way and I interpret it this way. And that's a reasonable, you know, issue. We, that's true. You know, we, we've got to work through, you know, what, how do we interpret the Bible? And that's a whole other conversation that I would love to teach because <laughs> it's, it's such an important thing to understand for Christians. But let's just talk about symbolism for just a moment. The symbolism in these words, so they are symbolic, 
it does not require us to undo our belief surrounding the reality of what we call hell. And to say that just because it's symbolic that we can't accept it as a, having a literal conclusion that leads us to believe that there's a hell, it's actually a straw man argument or maybe even a red herring argument that's made that is actually trying to distract from the point of the conversation at hand. The point isn't whether or not these are symbolic, allegorical expressions. The point is, is there a hell? And, 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 and if you only stop at, well, these words are symbolic, you're actually not dealing with the conversation. And so we, we want to deal with this with integrity. And so let's just look at allegory. We use allegory, symbols, and illustrations to describe very real things all the time. If I were to tell you, tell you right now that outside it is raining cats and dogs, right? First off, you wouldn't believe me because it's not. But second of all, <laughs> if it was pouring out there, and I said it was raining cats and dogs, and you said, cats and dogs don't fall from the sky, and you walked out there with an, um, out an umbrella, what would happen? You'd get soaking wet, wouldn't you? How about this one? You're driving home. You got a buddy who's about 15 minutes behind you. You're on the interstate, I-10, headed eastbound. By the way, this happens to me all the time. And somebody gets in a wreck because people just struggle to drive. <laughs> to stay enough distance between the cars and in your lane and we should be okay and nobody does it. Yeah, sorry, off the, off the soapbox. And, and sometimes there's some really serious wrecks that, that are a shame but that can back up the traffic, right? And so you call your buddy and you're like, hey, I know you're following me and I just wanted to tell you, take an alternate route. The interstate is a parking lot. See you at the house in a little while. Click. And, and what happens? Your buddy's like, the interstate's a parking lot. The interstate's not a parking lot. It's a highway. I'm just going to keep driving. He must not know what he's talking about. And he pulls up to five miles of backed up traffic, bumper to bumper, and people are literally outside of their cars with the doors open, cars in park, looking to see what's going on. Is the interstate literally a parking lot? No. Does it make the reality of the condition of the interstate any less real? No. Might as well call it a parking lot. This is symbolism. This is allegory. This is common of how we use these things in language. And the Bible uses allegory and symbols and illustrations as well to describe very real things. So, for instance, this place that we're talking about, afterlife, right? Like what happens afterlife, whether it's heaven or hell. This place in the afterlife that we are referring to as hell, illustrations or symbolism is used in the Bible with language like this, like fire, like darkness, pit, sulfury place. It's described as having people or souls in chains, a place where there's conscious torment, where there's anguish, where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Could it be that the author was using symbolism to express the severity of the outcome of finding yourself in that place? Okay, I, I concede. It's symbolic. But does it make the reality of that place any less severe? No. No, it's appropriate symbolism. It's appropriate allegory to describe the place that... God intended for us to understand. It's an appropriate description. And so while there may be some nuance of the language used to define hell, and, and we could exhaust that conversation. I'm, I know I'm oversimplifying, but for the sake of time, which you're all like, hallelujah, <laughs> we're going to keep moving. There is nuance in the language, but we here at Northwood Church are still very confident that the Bible teaches that there is eternal punishment for the wicked. And there is eternal life for the righteous. And so I want to drill down. And I want to look at some biblical descriptions of hell. And I want to give you another resource. Pull out your pens and your notepads. It's a book called Erasing Hell. And it was a response to a book that I just forgot the name of by a guy named Rob Bell, which I don't necessarily encourage you to read. He's a very progressive, emergent church guy that uh, we have already you know, deemed as teaching her heresy. 
And uh, this book was written by a guy named Francis Chan and the other guy, it was co-authored with the guy that we recommended last week who wrote those uh, books on sexuality, Preston Sprinkle. So Chan and Sprinkle co-authored this book called Erasing Hell. They wrote it about 11 years ago. And it more fully articulates this idea that we're about to teach, which is the, the descriptions of hell that we're going to walk through. And so Erasing Hell is a good resource for you to dig into if you're more curious about these things. But I'm going to do a flyover at about a million miles an hour. One, hell is eternal. The Greek word for eternal is eonos, and it's used as a, when used as a noun, it can mean an age or an era. It can also mean a never-ending age to come. And so here is where some controversy comes. Some people will say, well, eternal, it doesn't have to mean never-ending. It just means an age. An age can have a finite period of time. And, and so when it's used as a noun, it's like either or in their minds, in, people, in, 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 in the, somebody who's trying to interpret this, right? It's either a period of time or it's never-ending. But then when you use the word as an adjective to further describe something, because that's what adjectives do, it is consistently used, meaning everlasting or a never-ending period of time. And so the more thorough, more consistent interpretation of this word eternal is never-ending and everlasting. And so that's why we say that hell, and we believe this to be true about heaven as well, is eternal. Now, the language nuance, again, is way more complicated than you might think, but, but if we were to simplify it, we can see a really plausible argument for why we would believe this. And, and this is what we teach here. And everlasting, because it has more support, when we read what Jesus says about eternity, we insert the idea that he's talking about an everlasting eternity. And so in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is speaking about himself. And by the way, he's actually speaking about himself, Jesus. The words recorded of Jesus, and he's speaking about himself, rendering judgment, a future judgment. Is God judgy? Well, is Jesus God? Maybe that's one of the reasons why people like to diminish his divinity so that you don't attach the judgment that Jesus clearly says he'll be making with God. We don't want to confuse those things, right? But Jesus is God, and, and Jesus says he makes judgments. And as he's speaking about himself bringing a future judgment, he says he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's some tough language, Jesus. That is tough. Depart from me, you cursed. Now, we use that language all the time when we think about the curse of sin and death. This is what he's referring to. You haven't yielded yourself to, to the king, to the lordship of Jesus, and so you still come under the curse of sin and death. And so we hear that language, and it sounds harsh. He's just being very literal, very matter-of-fact. It means you cursed. And you're going to wind up in a place where the devil and his angels have also been destined for. Now, that concludes what we believe about hell being eternal. We believe that hell is eternal, and I definitely believe that hell is everlasting. Now, hell is not only eternal. Hell is also conscious. Some argue that if hell exists, that there's no way that people are conscious in hell. In Luke chapter 16, however, Jesus teaches a parable of a man who goes to Hades. It's a, that, in other words, what we would see in the modern translation, hell and is in a conscious state. And he's pleading with Abraham, who you know, is able to hear and communicate with, receive uh, uh, interaction. Uh, and he's communicating with Abraham, and he's saying, would you please tell my family that this is real so that they don't wind up here as well? He's conscious enough to be able to understand that he doesn't want his family to wind up in the same place. And I'm going to return to that in a little while. But we also see in the scripture that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth when people are cast out into outer darkness, which is another way that hell is described. And that weeping and gnashing of teeth indicates an emotional and bodily agony. And, and I, I hate that that is the reality. But that's what the Bible seems to present to us. And I'm going to be honest with you. We need to be, we need to be transparent. Let, again, let's not set up straw man arguments here. There's not a ton of 
theological support about a conscious hell. There's only a few scriptures in the Bible that actually support this. But there's no scriptures in the Bible that reject that, that, that teach otherwise. And so it is easy for us to then say, well, the scripture does seem to have a prescription for it. And so we rely on the scripture. Now, hell is not only eternal and conscious, but we also believe it is punishment for the wicked. A lot of people, including progressive Christians, and this is what a lot of progressive Christians are, teach in, in, in their churches, um, they would say that hell is a restorative place where we are refined and renewed. But this isn't what Jesus or other biblical authors appear to be teaching. One, we believe, based on what we see in the scripture, that life is the place where we go on our journey of sanctification to be healed, to be restored, to be renewed, right? Uh, that's the life we're living in. But two, Jesus does speak pretty clearly about an eternal punishment. In Matthew 25, verse 46, which is just a couple verses down from the last one, if you were to go read Matthew 25, you would get all of this context. Jesus says these, and he's speaking of the unrighteous, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I want to circle back to that word eternal that we just dealt with a moment ago, because here's also a perfect illustration about the idea of using eternal as everlasting or not. So a lot of people would prefer to say that hell is not everlasting. Hell is a temporary, finite period of time. It's an era, right? But then they would say heaven, on the other hand, now that, that's everlasting. <laughs> and here we see Jesus using them the exact same way in the exact same scripture to talk about two different places. And, and so we have to conclude either heaven is not eternal and hell is not eternal which now we got some major problems. Or they're both eternal and everlasting. That being said, the punishment, I, I love to be able to tell you this, uh, is not for those who put their trust in Jesus. But I hate to have to say this, that the punishment is for those who reject Jesus. And I hate it because the consequence is dire. Unfortunately, there will be those who reject Jesus not only till the day they die, but we draw a theology from the scripture that says if, if your heart was to reject him as you lived, your heart will continue to reject him even in eternity. Just because you sense his glory. Satan sensed his glory. Satan was literally in heaven with God and in his pride rejected God. Just because you're in heaven doesn't mean all of a sudden you'll want to bow down. Now, will you bow down because he's the king of kings? Yes, I'm just not convinced that you'll do it from heaven. And unfortunately, there will be those who even say, Lord, Lord, who have a confession. I'm a Christian, but we see in the scripture that he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. This is so sad. This is why we stress, one, praying, Holy Spirit, do a work here because I can't convince people. But two, also teaching with clarity to make sure we know what we believe because belief does matter. If you can say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus would say, depart from me, I never knew you, apparently we can believe wrongly. And, and this matters. And now I want to come and go to another question. Another question about hell is this, isn't hell overkill? Now in our week, the logic of sin if you go back and listen, northwood.church slash podcast, you can catch up on all this because I know right now y'all are like, if you haven't been here for any of these, you're like, this is crazy. <laughs> but go back and catch up and it'll start making more sense. In the logic of sin, we taught that we have a misdemeanor mindset about sin. Like, for instance, lying is better than murder. And since I'm not a murderer, that's eh, okay to have a little white lie here and there, right? It's a misdemeanor mindset. And and then what we do is we begin to lie to our neighbor, our spouse, our children. We even lie to ourselves. And we've justified it and we say, ah, it's no big deal. It's just a little white lie. And, and we live that life. And what we don't realize is that it's actually a very big deal because when we sin, we're not just sinning against our neighbor or against ourselves. We are literally sinning against our eternally glorious creator. 
I read recently this, that the seriousness of the sin is not measured merely by the sin itself. So like your serious of sin is not based on whether you lied or you killed somebody. Like that's not what makes sin any more or less serious. Though they obviously seem to be more grievous, especially from our experience, you could have a, a, a much more severe consequence for a certain sin. But that makes the, the sin is the sin. And, and he continues, he says, but we actually determine the seriousness by the value and the worth of the one being sinned against. If we're sinning against God, how do we value him? How do we ascribe worth to him? And if we ascribe value and worth to him lowly, then we'll have a very low view of the consequence of sin. If we ascribe worth and value to God highly, then we'll have a higher view of the consequence of sin. And he actually goes on to say, our emotional reflex against the traditional doctrine of hell reveals what we really believe about God. If we struggle to believe that there is a hell, we may actually have a low view of God. That's a pretty big deal. Now, furthermore, we underestimate sin's devastating effects. See, in America... How many of you got your Starbucks this morning, right? Maybe, maybe not today, but sometime this week, you're, you're going to go grab your little, you know, mocha latte, latte thing, right? And we're sipping our lattes. By the way, I don't order according to their size names. I order small, medium, or large. I just wanted to mention that, okay? <laughs> that was my little rebellious moment right there. <laughs> Thumbs down, bro. Roll with me on it. In America, we sip our lattes and we watch our Netflix in the safety of our homes, while in other countries and in other eras, there are grievous atrocities and injustices happening all over the place. And so for many that are under the weight of war, for many that are under the weight of, of tyranny, under the weight of uh, radicalized you know, marauding groups literally tearing down their villages. For people under the weight and the burden of that, their only hope is of God exacting his justice against the wicked. And we're like, justice, that's not cool. While we sip in our air conditioning. If God were to let the unjust go unpunished, this would be a very unloving thing for him to do. If God doesn't punish evil, he is unloving. Think about you as a, maybe you're a parent in here right now. And, uh, man, you got a child and somebody commits a grievous uh, trespass against your child. If you don't at least have a heart for justice, to execute justice. Now, we know that vengeance is the Lord's. And so we, we try to give that. We try to defer that back to God because we're not God. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a heart with a, a bit of wrath, something is broken in the way that you love your child. You should have a holy, righteous fury over someone committing a trespass against your child. Now, that doesn't mean sinful anger, but that does mean this deep sense of frustration. And God has that as well. But then, interestingly, God actually flips to script. And while we're over here saying, well, that person sinned against me and that person sinned against them and, and they need judgment, God says, you're all wicked. You're all sinners. You all fall short. And we all need to come under the exacting justice and judgment of God so that his love can be kept pure and his holiness can be kept pure. And with that in mind, one other question that we need to quickly address today, how could a loving God punish people in hell? How many of you thought that already? We've, we've all asked that question. Well, God doesn't choose to punish people. That's, that's not his, like, he didn't sit out. He didn't wake up this morning and say, who am I going to send to hell today? That's, that's not God. Like, and some of us get that in our heads, you know. God didn't choose to punish people. People choose the consequence of their lives by rejecting the mercy that God has offered and displayed in and through Christ. We choose consequence. We choose judgment. God doesn't. And it's partly, I think, that we struggle to grasp this idea because we struggle to grasp God's nature, his attributes, his characteristics. In some senses, because we're just finitely minded, we, we're limited. Okay, like we don't have the capacity to understand. Nobody knows the, the mind or, or will of God perfectly, right? 
we lean into him and he reveals more of it to us, but, but we don't know. His ways are inscrutable, according to the scriptures. And, and so there's that. But then we also partly ignore the information that God does give us about himself because we don't study the word to discern what does he say about himself. And, and so when we hear words like mercy, that's easy for us to understand. We're like, yes, yes, God's merciful. But when we hear words like wrath and suggest that that's a characteristic of God, we're like, nah, I don't know about that. Yeah. When we hear words like holiness, we're like, well, maybe. When we hear words like justice or judgment, which flows out of God's justice, that characteristic of God, that's not my favorite. You know what one I'd like to focus on today? And I think we need to talk more about this. We need to talk about the love of God, okay? And I hear that even in conversations with people that I interact with you know, regularly. We talk a little too much about that. We need to talk more about love and mercy. And we ignore all of those other characteristics of God because we struggle to reconcile how they work together. See, did you know that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 through 10, we're not putting it on the screen, but it teaches that God's love is shown to us by him sending Christ. You're like, amen, hallelujah, he loves us. I am loved, right? And we're singing in the shower, I'm so loved, We love it. But why did he send Christ to do what? Well, so that Christ would ultimately receive the full penalty of our sin and therefore satisfy the wrath of God on the cross and to to pay a ransom so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin and death to be liberated into the freedom that's in Christ. The wrath of God that Jesus took upon himself so that we wouldn't have to literally is an expression of God's love. But I don't want to hear about wrath. Do you see the inconsistency there? See, God's love and wrath are inseparable. Uh, classic, uh, very reliable theologian that I encourage you to look at if you're ever interested in going deeper in some things, D.A. Carson. He says, do you wish to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you wish to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. They're inseparable. And until we understand that, we will struggle with a traditional historical interpretation of the scriptures and we will constantly look to explain away wrath and judgment and hell. Here at Northwood Church, we believe hell to be a place of eternal conscious punishment for everyone who rejects Christ. And I know that's hard to swallow because many of us have lost loved ones and we're not sure what the state of their soul was when they passed. I've lost a lot of people in my life. Um, I'm 39 and uh, I, I don't know, man, I, I talk to some people and they've not lost near as many people and I'm just like, man, why have I lost so many people to cancer? Um, many people to cancer and uh, overdoses and suicide, and motorcycle accidents, and car accidents. Uh, one of my best friends, some of you in this room actually know him. Uh, my, my, he was a brother to me. He grew up two doors down. His name is Joe. And um, Joe and I were tight. We, we ran tight. And uh, years went by, and uh, we had moved away from where we grew up. And then we wound up living literally a block away uh, in a house in Biloxi. Uh, we were a block away from one another. And actually, one of our other close partners, he, he wound up moving in with me as a, as a uh, roommate. And one night, it's like 2 a.m., and uh, Danny comes swinging down the hallway. And he's banging on the door. And, uh, and I open the door. He's like, yo, I just got a call. Joe has been in a wreck, and we got to go. And uh, we jumped it literally. I mean, just out the door. And we wound up uh, doing about 100 down 90. Don't do that. Uh, got to the hospital, and the report was that he had an eternal de- decapitation. And so he's laying there on life support, and I'm a believer now. I've been saved for a little over a year. And, um, and I remember going in, okay, okay, I'm going to pray, I'm going to believe for a miracle. And I also remember going in, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there for his family, who's like family to me. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to listen. I'm going to let them cry on my shoulder. We're going to weep together over this horrible thing. And I remember for the first time wondering, because I had preached to Joe. I had talked to Joe about my faith. I 
told him about my salvation. We talked a lot about it, and he's kind of resistant. I didn't know where he was with things, and I don't know where he wound up. I'm not sure. But I remember that was the first time that I'd ever realized that one of the people that I loved was potentially dying. I later learned he was already dead, and there was no miracle that came. And I wasn't sure about his eternal outcome. I wasn't sure if he'd wind up in glory with me or would be destined to hell. Yeah, that was hard, man. And I remember, I, man, I just tried to explain hell away. I wished I could have. Oh, man, I wanted to just come up with some way to prove that it wasn't real. And I did the work. You know, y'all, if you know me by now, you know I did the work. <laughs> I got the books. I read the Bible. And I studied this thing. I asked the questions. Man, I can't, I can't get away from it. Hell's real. And it sucks because I don't know if Joe is going to be in heaven. And so it's real that this is hard. I get that. Because hell is a place of eternal separation from God. And when you think about it, it can actually bring a degree of grief to your heart. And so I do believe that this should stir in us a sense of urgency. I'm thankful that I did faithfully preach the gospel to Joe. And maybe, maybe as he hit that tree and he was being ejected from his seat, maybe in a moment God stirred to remembrance that gospel and salvation came to Joe. I don't, I, I don't know. God can do that. I don't have the answers. But I do know that I am and have been since then more urgent to tell people about the good news of Jesus about what he's saving us, not just unto, but what he's saving us from. This is important. We should have a sense of urgency because there are people all around us who have and will continue if we do not proclaim the gospel to find themselves in an, an afterlife that looks like hell. And we don't want that for the people we love. We don't want that for anybody. And so what I want to do right now is I want to look at the other, the other side of it because there's also not just an outcome of hell for those who reject Christ. There's a promise of heaven that brings hope. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the motivation to send Jesus. But in order that the world might be saved through him. And so while hell is a place of eternal separation from God, heaven is a place of eternal union with God, and that union comes through the free gift of salvation. This eternal life comes through Christ. Here at Northwood Church, we believe heaven to be a place of eternal conscious reward for people who are found in Christ. It's a future hope and glory that we have the ability to, to present to people, to give them an opportunity to say yes to. That's why we exist as a church, to proclaim this good news. Tim Keller says this about heaven. This current world is not all there is. Christians will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, new heaven, and new earth, where we will be freed from sin and inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. Is anybody hope-filled when they hear that? And we receive this union with God. Through Christ. There's no other way. You, calling yourself a Christian doesn't get you there. It's placing your entire life in the hands of Christ Jesus and trusting him with your outcome, saying, yes, Lord. It is through your shed blood, through the finished work that you accomplished on the cross, that I have salvation. That's the path to heaven, and it's a narrow path. Now, the man that I told you Jesus taught about in the parable, he asked Abraham, if someone could go be resurrected and be sent to warn his family to repent and avoid the torment that he was experiencing. And you know what Abraham told them? He said, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. I went to Joe's room believing for a miracle. I was praying that it would be a testimony of God's glory. God, you can do it. You've done it before. You'll do it again. I was full of faith. And God didn't raise him from the dead. And here's the answer. Abraham 
tells this man in this parable, if they didn't believe the word, the law and the prophets, if they didn't believe the truth given to them explicitly in the Holy Scriptures, they will not believe when I give them a resurrection. And here we are out here seeking a sign, praying for miracles, and we should. I'll always pray for a miracle. But, but we rely on those miracles. We're like, God, just give me a miracle and maybe I'll believe. God, heal my friend and maybe I'll believe. God, do this thing and maybe I'll believe. And here the word says, no, believe my word. Believe what I've told you. And this is what the word says. John 3, 36, just a few verses down from John 3, 16, it says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is real. This is truth. People need to hear the word of this truth. There is a place of eternal separation from God apart from Christ. But there is a place of eternal union with God, our Father, who loves you, who is compassionate for you, who is long-suffering for you, who is patiently waiting on you to just yield your life, surrender your life to him. There's a place of eternal union with him, but it only comes through trusting in Christ. This is the word of truth that people need to hear, that you need to hear, that we all need to be reminded of day in and day out. And so I want to pray and ask that God would help us today. Father, if there any, be anybody in this room who's not trusted you for salvation, cause your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, to prick their hearts, to convict them, lead them to repentance, that they turn from their old way and turn towards you, the one who is perfect and pure and right, who is full of love and mercy who's willing to save us from the wrath that is reserved for those who rebel. God, save those people in this room today. For all of us, Lord, let us remember what you saved us from, and that that would stir worship in our hearts. Let us never forget, God, that you have redeemed us out of sin and death, out of the grave. We rejoice over that now. 